Welcome to Global Conversations from Scotland, brought to you by the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. Follow us via scga.scot or on social media. And now the podcast. And welcome to the next podcast from the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. And today we're going a little further afield, indeed all the way to Lincoln, Nebraska, to speak to, uh, to speak to Tyler White, who is Assistant Professor of Practice and Director of the National Security Programme in the Department of Political Science at the University of Nebraska. Good afternoon or good morning, Tyler. Uh, you know what? We're we're just before noon here, so uh, either one will work. I'm I'm doing good. It's it's a heck of a thing to have to deal with the time difference, but I'm really glad to be here. So we met last month at a conference that was organized that the SCGA helped organize with the MOD's yep. DSTL on deterrence and assurance, their their academic alliance, which I think meets every year or every two years. And is, is that something you've been part of before? Yeah. So the academic alliance, um, as, as we kind of know, it sort of started here in the United States um, at uh, U.S. Strategic Command. And actually, I still work with uh, the person who started it a long time ago. And then the STL um, basically ran a very similar uh, program. They're sort of sister programs. And so they interact with one another quite a bit. And I've hosted uh, the DAAA conference here in Lincoln several times. And uh, the Ministry of Defense has always been amazing um, in sending representatives because um, you know, uh, we're so close um, in terms of being allies, but, you know, there, there's so many natural linkages there. So I told the organizers, thank you for always coming to my conferences. I promise I will come to one of yours. And I was very, very happy to be in Edinburgh um, last uh, last month for that. So it's something that's been going on for a little over a decade now. And I think it's done a tremendous job of bringing together a community of people who are really interested in these issues. And if we start, not quite at the beginning, but start in your own interest, what what got you into this area? What, I know that you're, you have a speciality in national security issues. Yeah. And, and what, what brought you specifically into that area of deterrence and also the, the educational side of it, which I think is quite an important strand? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot like a lot of other stories, it's not it's not always straightforward and you kind of end up where you end up through um, a whole bunch of different things that happen through your educational career, your, your natural um, interests. You know, I grew up as a kid, really interested in the world. Um, I remember I was very young, but I remember Chernobyl happening and seeing that on television and asking my dad all kinds of questions. Where is that? What is going on? What's the Soviet Union? All those different kinds of things. So I was sort of keenly aware of the Cold War. And, you know, even though I grew up in the 80s and it, you know, it was it was definitely a different uh, sort of global um, geopolitical climate at the time. But I was always interested in that stuff. Um, and then, you know, the U.S. Strategic Command, you know, was about, you know, 50 miles from where I grew up. And, you know, they would have air shows and stuff and you could go see the airplanes. And I was always fascinated with that. My dad um, bought a model of the E-4B. It's a great big white 747 and it's called the Doomsday Plane. And he got it at the store and we put it together, you know, and I was like, why is this airplane you know, interesting and different. He was telling me about it and the whole thing just sort of blew my little mind, right? So all through high school, I was interested in it. And then I went and I studied political science 
And, you know, 9-11 happened when I was a junior in college um, and the whole world sort of turned, right? Um, everyone was focusing on these issues of terrorism and so on and so forth. I was always really still interested in the big sort of power politics. And, you know, I had this moment where I thought I was going to go to law school and, um, you know, that was the plan all along. And I sort of stopped and I was like, I don't want to go to law school. I want to keep studying this stuff. And I had some tremendous mentors here at the University of Nebraska who said, if you want to work on a PhD, you know, you know, this would be a good place for you to do it. So I did. Um, and I, as I was getting ready to graduate with my PhD, by the way, I wrote my dissertation was not on any of this stuff. It was on um, identity politics in the European Union. Um, oh, so it was <laughs> it was pretty different. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, but as I was getting ready to graduate, my wife um, had gone to law school and she started up her own law firm right out of law school. I think she was the only one in her class to do it. And it was going really well. And so I wasn't going to be the kind of person to be like, all right, we're going to I'm going to go get a, a, a tenure track job somewhere and we're going to you know move to central Missouri or Tennessee or something like that. So I was thinking to myself, well, what can I do? And the university, including my dissertation chair, had applied for and won a grant uh, to work with the U.S. intelligence community, basically setting up uh, a program to encourage students to go into analysis in, in the IC. Um, and so I kind of jumped on that and I was doing a little bit of that. I was doing a little bit of advising and so on and so forth, but it got me back into that area of national security and the people I got to work with, I don't know that there are more interesting people on earth, <laughs> frankly, it was, it was amazing, but I got to look at those issues I'd always been interested in again. And so I kind of retooled my, my skill set, And I said, I, I love being a teacher. I love being a professor and educator. Um, so what can what can I do that will have these two things kind of meet up? And that program was really good. And with that, I, um, I had a lot more contact and outreach with U.S. Strategic Command, who um, who ended up they're, they're I'm, one of my favorite groups of people to work with. I send students there. They do research for Stratcom. Some of my former students work there. And I know a lot of people in that building. And that is how. Um, I met some of the folks at DSTL because they have such a close relationship with Stratcom. And so, um, you know, it's a winding path to get there, but it has been so interesting and engaging. And and so I I'm really lucky to be able to do the kinds of things that I've been able to do over the over that period of time. So I don't know yeah, if that answers your question, but <laughs> absolutely it does. And on that winding path, we there's a whole other podcast to be done on identity politics in the European Union, which I'm happy to go. Yeah, back oh to. yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting because my my time at college at, at St Andrews, one of our partners, was yeah. exactly at the time that the wall came down. So it, you're almost those was almost the bookends of that period where we thought we'd got everything sorted out between. 1989 and 9-11 was really when, I guess, the Western consensus looked well. And it seemed to me, at least sitting in as as a as an, a relative outsider at the, at the conference last month, hearing all this talk about deterrence and assurance, deterrence wasn't really something I'd thought about since the Cold War finished. Um, I mean, is, is that a fair reflection of the general perception that somehow we've 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 forgotten the importance of those sorts of areas of of, of security and 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 study. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Um, I think 
I think we took a victory lap after the the collapse of the Soviet Union thinking, you know, Francis Fukuyama famously writes, it's the end of history, right? Um, but the problem is, is that ball just keeps bouncing, right? It, it's never going to go away. And um, I think there's a whole there's a whole discussion to be had about NATO enlargement, which which I absolutely support. And there's a there's a bunch of other um, discussions to be had. But, um, you know, there were a lot of un unfortunate things that happened in the U.S.-Russian relationship. Um but I also think that it might have been inevitable that it was never going to be what we had hoped that it would be. Um, and so you always have to keep that in mind. I think since the invention of nuclear weapons, the world is fundamentally a different place, right? And some people will take a look at it and they will say, these nuclear weapons have staved off major power wars that are going to kill a whole bunch of people. And other people will say, well, yeah, but, um, you know, what happens if you have an accident? And the fact that they're even there puts the entire world in, in peril and we should get rid of them, right? And I sort of fall in between these two and I say, you can't uninvent them. They're never going to go away. So how do you responsibly manage them? Um, and since they're there, you have to think about the impact they have on relations with potential adversaries. And, you know, during that period of time that you mentioned, you know, from, you know, 1991 till 9-11, you know, the United States, um, we had tons of base closures and everything. We were trying to enjoy this peace dividend, right? And, you know, STRATCOM uh, it was the Strategic Air Command. Strate strategic Air Command went away. They, they, got, they got rid of it and they turned it to the U.S. Strategic Command. And it was a backwater, right? I mean, no one were, no one was thinking about nuclear weapons. And then 9-11 comes along and no one's really no one's thinking about nuclear weapons. They're thinking about terrorism. You know, from my perspective, I think probably, you know, you know, maybe you seeing this from the Brit from the from the British perspective, terrorism was scary. Terrorism was um you know, it's sensational, it's not an existential threat. You know, no even if we try to talk ourselves into it, it, it's not. Even the basis for the Iraq war, which I think is, you know, has a lot of problems was WMD, right? Weapons of mass destruction. Um, and so at the end, I think we we sort of take our, our eye off the prize and the result was, you know, weapon systems that have atrophied, they've gotten really old um, and, you know, priorities put elsewhere, so money is put elsewhere. Um, and now all of a sudden we're living in a world in which, not you don't just have one adversary you potentially have two and the world isn't coalescing behind major powers the way that it used to so the world looks a lot different um so you have a lot of the problems of nuclear weapons and deterrence and so on and so forth but you're living in a much more complex geopolitical environment right and i think we're just now trying to wrap our heads around that problem and i guess in that respect, Ukraine has suddenly it's rung a, a distant bell for a lot of us, where we may have assumed yeah. that issues of of nuclear deterrence or nuclear threats or indeed aging nuclear um, arsenals had kind of yeah. drifted into our into our mid memory, and all of a sudden they're being talked about as potential threats, potential dangers. Never mind the potential deterrence that uh, the the continuance of nuclear weapons on the territory of Ukraine might have had on, on the situation we're in now. 
Yeah. I mean, I think look at all the lessons that we're learning, unfortunately, and look at the lessons that our policy have taught potential adversaries. And I think you, you, you touched on that, right? When, when Ukraine became independent, it was the third largest, the, you know, the third largest nuclear power in the world, right? Um, because it was such a such a vital spot for the Soviet Union, and it had a whole bunch of nuclear weapons. And the Ukrainians were like, you know, we can't afford to maintain these. These are a liability, and we want to get rid of them. But we understand getting rid of them is going to, you know, it's a nice thing to have if you're trying to deter someone. The Russians are like, well, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. And the Americans are like, we, you know, we will... You know, we will guarantee your security. And, you know, they sort of shake um, hands, the, the Russians and the Americans on this. And, you know, Ukraine did not benefit from what they thought were solid security guarantees made by both the Americans and the Russians. Um, and I think it's it's harder for, you know, you know, to look at the United States because things have changed, you know, quite a bit. And Ukraine goes through a, a tremendous transition from 1991 until today. And I think they they definitely are, they've made the decision as a country, they want to be a part of Europe, right? Um, and so all of a sudden it brings it, you know, and then the invasion and then the rattling of the nuclear saber from the Russian perspective and so on and so forth. And it brings it back to the public imagination. But the one thing I would remind people is a lot of these, a lot of these issues, they have been in motion for well over a decade. I mean, you can go, well, when the Western world was sort of distracted with the war on terror and the Middle East, you know, Putin was um, rearming and he was becoming aggressive again. And he was telling us, you know, he, he went to the Munich, um, the Munich Security Conference in the late 2000s. And he basically said, you know, we're we're done with American expansionism and aggression. And, you know, we're going to we're going to play this this role of reassembling our security sphere. And it was really difficult because, you know, a lot of those countries they used as a buffer zone. Now we're a part of NATO. Uh, you know, I, I and, and by the way, like this is the part of the debate that really bothers me. And, you, and I hear it in the United States. I hear it elsewhere. Um, but people somehow defending Putin's viewpoint that NATO expansion um, incentivized him to be aggressive. And I to that, I say, you know, these countries wanted to join NATO. The United States didn't go and enforce them to. In fact, at the beginning, we resisted NATO expansion for that exact reason. But imagine being a Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, you know, um, Hungary, Poland, those countries did not enjoy their relationship with the Russians. <laughs> in fact, they were victimized horribly by it. And to be in a defensive military alliance that would prevent them from having to suffer that fate over again, who can blame them for wanting to do that? Right. So um, I think we have to we have to take a look at those countries and say, um, yeah, you're you're a sovereign, independent country and you can you can call your shots. Um, so. That stuff has been going on for a while, and I think with Ukraine and and certainly with the with Chinese um, inertia being what it is, all of a sudden people are starting to pay attention to that again, right? And we're having these these debates, but I think we've lost so much of the context that was helpful in the Cold War because Western societies are really divided right now, um, and the the way you get information is very different, right? There's there's sort of no authoritative source anymore, which is really problematic for trying to understand these really complex uh, problems, right? Certainly, absolutely. So in terms of that, how do you 
how do you go about engaging and educating on this front? How do you go about you know mobilizing students and getting people to think about these things in a 21st century capacity? Do you is it easy or is it you're pushing it a closed door to a certain extent? Well, I th- I think um I think you have to recognize the challenge for what it is, right? And the challenge is um students and I think people just in general, their attention is constantly uh, is the is the object of envy for corporations and news groups and you know like every people's attention is monetized to the point where they have a hard time you know breaking away and seeing the world for what it is and I don't I don't blame them right so you have to figure out how do I make the make the case I think nuclear Armageddon um, to me and climate change like those are the two existential threats that you know as far as i see and i was t- talking with someone they're like well i'm really worried about climate change and i'm like i'm worried about climate change too but a nuclear war is instant climate change right like <laughs> it is all all the all the worst things but it happens right away um and that all of a sudden like a light bulb went off in their head and i was like really you know this is i i uh at the at the DAAA conference i presented you know, a couple of comments from my students who took my nuclear policy class this year. And I asked them at the beginning of class, I said, how often do you think about nuclear weapons? And it was like, never, I don't, maybe once a month. My favorite response was probably more now that I'm taking this class. But, <laughs> you know, I think I think the bottom line is, is like, it is kind of out of sight, out of mind. And that's a problem. It's a problem because in a democracy, we need to be engaged and understand um not just uh, not just the the potential um, hazards out there and dangers, but also our responsibility, right? Yeah. Um, and when you when you talk about nuclear deterrence, the United States in particular not only has a responsibility to try to avoid nuclear war at all costs, but we have taken it upon ourselves to issue security guarantees, nuclear security guarantees to states who don't have nuclear weapons. And and the reason that we do that is because we don't want more proliferation, right? Um, The the South Koreans and the Japanese, they could make a nuclear weapon very quickly. The Germans could do it very quickly, right? Um, But we, you know, we make those guarantees so they don't do it because we're trying to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. Most people don't understand or think about that, right? Mm. Um, And, you know, I think there's a lot of really good um, criticisms that we can level at U.S. foreign policy in terms of the way that it, you know, certainly the Iraq war and, you know, some of these other kinds of things. I think we look back at those in, in Vietnam and and we, we realize that their mistakes have been made. I But I, I will stick by the, the notion that, you know, sort of the U.S. led global liberal international order um, is a wonderful and unique arrangement of global politics in world history that has really benefited a lot of people. Um, And I would rather learn from our mistakes and try to, you know, try to correct those than throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I don't think people recognize that. I don't think people understand um, how much they actually benefit from from that system. Um, And so when it comes to nuclear deterrence, when it comes to alliances, when it comes to all of those really critical um, really critical arrangements that I think make the world a better place. I don't know that we're doing a good enough job of educating people. So that's the challenge um, that I see. And I, and I don't, I don't go into, I don't go into a class or I don't go into a talk or anything like that and say, you don't know anything and here's what you ought to know. But when you answer questions humbly and you allow them to drive the conversation, you do see light bulbs that go off because they don't, 
it's it's not that they're they don't like it or they're ignorant. It's just they don't think about it because their their attention is drawn so many other places, right? So part of the education component, I think, is meeting people where they are, answering their questions, and helping them to explore the world. Um, but you know, that's it's it's tougher and tougher. Um, but it's also a really good it's a really good thing to try to do. I'm not going to yeah. give up on that, right? <laughs> no, absolutely, and and it is a more if I think of my own education, it's a much more complex world to have to understand than a than a, a 70s, 80s, 90s world, where admittedly we were terrified of nuclear weapons as as a junior school kid. You know, we watched all these yeah. things like the day after and threads, and we were all yeah. terrified about the prospect. But yeah. it was the only thing that scared us. We weren't scared by bioweapons or by terrorism, apart from the 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 kind of rumbling threat from Northern Ireland in in the British case, Um, you know, war for anybody in my side of Europe was the Falklands. That was it. You know, there was nothing really for us to concentrate on. And everything since then that we we have in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere has been of a much more, for want of a better word, conventional kind. You know, it's it's boots on the ground and it's it's airplanes and it's bombs and it's the it's the the kind of warfare that's probably easier to understand and yet despite endless treaties that nuclear threat hasn't gone away at all yeah i mean i think the the sad reality is right is now all those treaties are gone yeah. i mean you know arms control is in a really bad spot right now and this is another thing that i sort of want to call people's attention to is like you know, there are plenty of success stories of, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union deciding, you know, sort of the 1970s, they were like, oh my gosh, we have, how many nuclear weapons do we have? You know, at at one point, you know, you're in the tens of thousands of nuclear weapons on both sides. And it was like, these things are a hazard. We need to reduce them to a, to a size that makes sense and we got to learn to live with one another. And, you know, Ronald Reagan, I think, you know, you mentioned the, the movie The Day After. If you read some of the biographical stuff on Reagan, you know, he didn't really understand it. Then he watched that movie because that's how that's how his advisors often communicated with him. He was an actor and he understood movies. Right. And he was he was like in a in a panic and a stupor um, and a depression after watching that movie. And he did all of a sudden he gets religion about nuclear weapons. And I think the way he approached it. Um, there were some helpful aspects. There were some really unhelpful aspects, particularly with the um, the, 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 the the street the, the SDI Strategic Defense Initiative, the Star Wars, right? Um, but you see all these all these attempts by the Russians and the Americans to reduce, 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 reduce. And then I'm going to give you know President George H. W. Bush a whole bunch of credit. Like he really was able to um, you know get locked in a bunch of really good arms control agreements um, with Gorbachev and then su- subsequently with Yeltsin. Uh, Clinton did the same thing. Even Bush, um, W. Bush did that. And and Obama, when he had uh, Medvedev and not Putin, they were able to come to an agreement. But now, you know, the, the Russians have abandoned most of those things. The United States under Trump, uh, you know, abandoned a, a fair share of our own. Uh, they abandoned the Trump administration, abandoned the uh, the Iran nuclear, the, the JICPOA, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, which I think was a, a positive um, step. And so, you know, right now we're living in a we're living in the Wild West again. And mm. um how how are we going to work ourselves back into a position where we're focused on arms 
uh, arms reductions. Now it's a three-way puzzle or a four-way puzzle, or maybe a five-way puzzle, depending on Iran and North Korea, but certainly with China. And, and China's nuclear arsenal is very different from the American and the Russian approach. So the way that you constrain them is going to be different than the way that the Americans and the Russians constrain one another. So what does that look like? And how do we put ourselves in that position? And I think, unfortunately, sort of human nature being what it is, you know, something's going to have to happen to, to get them to want to go back to the table. But right now, they're not in that position, right? I think this is a really important thing for the public to know and understand, because, you know, in democracies, you can certainly, you know, start putting pressure on your on your elected representatives to say, you know, hey, this stuff is important and we think you should be paying more attention to it than than you are. And this should be prioritized. So, um, yeah, like exactly what you said, the world is so much more complicated today than it was. And your ability to get information about it is so much more um, complete than what it was before. Uh, and presumably also the uh, the previous understanding of how assurance may or may not work or coercion may or may not work is far more complicated now because you have the three-dimensional chess that your enemy's enemy may be your friend but may also be your enemy you know and so you're you know simply the sort of i mean it sounds a terrible thing to say that the reassuring days of mutually assured destruction are, are not quite the same anymore you've you've got you know you're having to deal with the unpredictability. And then it's an unpredictability that's not just in rogue states or rogue actors. It's an unpredictability, it seems to me, in almost all of global affairs these days. Even the most predictable nations and alliances are unpredictable at the moment. Yeah, I, I think that that's 100% true. I mean, um, I really, really worry about, you know, the United States reneging on a bunch of its obligations. Um, that was an unthinkable, unthinkable notion, um, you know, prior to 2016. And now all of a sudden um, the whole world is, you know, holding its breath every time we have a presidential election. Right. Um, you know, I think I think going back to what you said about complexity and I'll, and I'll sort of bring it forward, I, I would I would introduce a couple of terms I think the audience might find interesting just to explain how complex it is you know the the first thing is you know we're, we're dealing with what we call sort of a multi-domain environment right so back in the day you know mutually assured destruction it was nuclear weapons right now it's not just nuclear weapons there are different domains in which deterrence and assurance has to take place right those domains could include cyberspace those domains could include conventional military power um, they can in include financial, like the sort of financial system or economic power, right? So there's a whole bunch of new areas in which states are competing with one another. Um, and all of those things can overlap and they can intertwine and they can basically be used as levers, carrot sticks, inducements um, that can constrain behavior, right? So when we're thinking about how do we deal with a nuclear uh, a nuclear um Iran or, in, or or an aggressive nuclear Russia, um, you know, simply moving missiles around or or doing demonstrations, that's that's only part of the puzzle now, right? Um, and so all of those things flow together into a really complex deterrence and assurance um, recipe. And that recipe doesn't work the same on each one of your potential adversaries. So what's going to work with China? 
is not going to work with Russia and is not going to work with Iran and is not going to work with North Korea, right? And I think what you were saying earlier about, well, you never know who your friend or who your adversary could be, you know, down the road. I mean, it's possible that the Chinese and the Americans uh, share some um, share some preferences on certain parts of the world, right? It's possible that, you know, the Russians could be put in a position where they would be become cooperative on certain on certain things. The Arctic is going to be a really interesting place as as the ice caps melt and that becomes navigable. Um, how are how are these different countries going to figure out what their interests are and then how are they going to manage those interests? Right. And then leadership, um, you know, across Europe, across you know the United States. Um, you know, you are seeing, um, uh, you know, proto-authoritarians um, winning elections. And that's, you know, we're, we're now having to sit here and defend um, the virtues of an open democratic system, which I never thought that we would have to be doing. And it's unnerving. Um, it, it puts an entire society on edge when we have to when we have to do that. And so you're dealing with a lot of internal problems, even within these Western societies, um, where longstanding relationships um, can come under question as a as a function of domestic demagoguery, right? So there's a lot of things going on at the same time, and there's a lot to try to sort through if you're a person who's interested in the world and you're just trying to trying to keep tabs on what's going on. So I. You know, I, I sort of don't envy the person walking into this trying to figure it out for the first time because there's so much going on, right? At least in the position of that you're seeing some of those people for the first time. Some of your you're seeing students come into the, <laughs> that subject in that world. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, it, it's it to me it sounds fascinating, but presumably, you know, it's it's how do you engage them on the complexity of this? I know that there was some discussion at the conference on on war gaming and it's that's not something that i think we're terribly familiar with um in a uk capacity probably others of us old enough probably remember matthew broderick films and the kind of yes. strange strange <laughs> yes. sense of what sure. constitute war gaming but you know maybe just tell us a little bit about that and how that maybe helps people understand in more real terms what it is they're actually talking about Yes. So, um, you know, there was a war game that was we call it a, a war game. Right. What is it really? It's not it's not a war game. It's more of a simulation of, of decision making. Right. So um, how do decisions get made? And this is another thing I think is just really important to, to remember. You know, why do we elect a president or a prime minister or these people? Because they're executive level decision makers. Right. Um, there's problems and someone needs to make a call and that's what they're there to do. So they don't have an easy job. It's by no means easy. So in a quote unquote war game, in this case, what we did was we essentially simulated a, um, I mean, none of the countries are named. They all have, you know, fun names drawn from, you know, all, all different kinds of, of, of fictional uh, places, but the characteristics of the countries are recognizable, right? So yeah. I think I, I think I was Germany uh, <laughs> uh, when I participated in it, right? But the thing is, is each one of these states has preferences. They have they have red lines, things that they cannot do. They have things that they want to do. And when you realize that NATO or the European Union or any kind of alliance structure or bureaucratic structure, everybody has their own equities, the things that they need to defend, the things that they want to make sure that they they have. And 
in order to try to make a decision, it's really difficult to get everybody on the same page, right? So that's what this is simulating. Um, right when you think you have some kind of um, consensus, somebody's like, nope, that's a that's a deal breaker for me um, because you know, you're going to move resources from here to there and I need those resources where they're at otherwise my public is going to get upset with me and I'm I'm going to be tossed out on my ear right so that's the kind of simulation that we ran um, at the conference I have had I've been so blessed to be able to develop a bunch of these and run a bunch of these um you know wargaming again we'll call it wargaming I play I play Warhammer 40k which is you know uh, which is really big over in the UK. I was very excited to 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 go to the actual store. Like yes. when I think of wargaming, I'm like, which which one is it? Is it is it tabletop? Is it you know what's what's going on? Um, but the uh, the you know when they run a war game at U.S. Strategic Command or in the military or something like that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out what the failure points are, right? Mm -hmm. So they run through a scenario and it's super complex and they don't have all the information. And that's just like the real world, yeah. right? You're going to be surprised, but you're, but wouldn't it be better if you learned how to handle surprise because a, a, a designer of a war game put it in there and you stumbled across it when you were sort of practicing, right? Um, and so that's the whole point. The whole point is to make people deal with complexity and recognize it, to have to work with one another, and then to have to deal with surprise. And most of the time when you do a war game, you lose. And that's a good outcome. Yeah. Right? It's a good outcome because now you know sort of what not to do. So that's that's kind of, you know, the, the war gaming, um, you know, that, that, that we did then. I've also done a whole bunch of simulations for like intelligence analysis, right? So... You know, I, I think Intel analysts have a, have a super interesting job and I have a program that trains students to do structured analysis and some of these other kinds of things. But you get all this information in, right? This is exactly the way, this is the challenge I think everyday people go through. To try to figure out what's going on in the world, they have to be their own intelligence analyst, right? And that is you're going to get a ton of information. It's going to be pictures, it's going to be writing, it's going to be on television, it's going to be it's all kinds of different, if somebody told you something in the hallway, Right. Um, and you get all this information, you got to be like, well, what's real and what's not real? And how am I going to decide? Well, we don't teach people the tool. We don't give them the tools to like noodle that problem, right? Um, to, to come up with a hypothesis and figure out how to test it, right? That stuff is so interesting. So some of the stuff that I've done is I've, you know, I've, um, I've simulated like what happens if you, you know, you get pictures and you're in their satellite imagery and you're watching somebody build something and you're like, well, what are they building? What is that? How would I know? Right. What are the indicators? So we did, uh, we did uh, an example of, there was a Walmart that was being built next to my house. So I took the over, over time, I took all the imagery of them building it. And then I said, and then I, then I changed everything. I used Photoshop and we changed some, moved some stuff around. Right. And what I did was I built a hide in place, uh, a hide in plain sight nuclear enrichment facility, but I didn't tell them that's what it was. So as far as they could see, it was a storefront, right? Um, well, if you're going to hide it in plain sight, why not put it in a, in a big box store? Because, you know, lots of floor space, right? Which is what you need for nuclear enrichment. But then you give them these other clues and then you ask them, what are they building? What are they doing? Right. And then they're kind of like, oh, I don't know how do we figure it out. Then you got to give them some tools to help them figure it out. Right. Indicators and things like that. And I feel like these are the types of skills that everybody can use, whether you're going to the grocery store. Right. And you, you're trying to figure out how to make the recipe, you know, you know, with the, the right ingredients or, you know, 
you know, your, your, your spouse sends you out there and they, you know, they were vague, but they have certain expectations. Well, how am I going to meet those expectations? Right. Um, by bringing back the right, the right stuff um, to making a financial decision, to deciding where you're going to go to school or what job you're going to take. A lot of these are tough problems that people need better tools to sort of noodle through. And guess what, you know, in the intelligence community, in defense, all these places, they have the same sort of analytical problems. So why not take some of those tools, teach them to people to help them make sense of their everyday world. Um, but also, those are great transferable skills, because now they can go, you know, work in an area where they're keeping us safe, or they're thinking about these big problems. Because at the end of the day, what I want is I want to know that there are people, smart people out there who have good training, who are handling these things for us, right? So my job as an educator is to try to find those people and, and put them in those positions so that we have smart people working on tough problems. That's perfect. That's that's exactly the kind of thing we want to hear. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting because it's the the tools may change and develop and become much more sophisticated, but ultimately you're talking about the same kind of process that was yep. going on in Cuba sixty years ago, you know, yep. to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you know what happens when what happened? Like well, in Cuba is, is a really good example um, because you know Kennedy and and his team they get two messages back from 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 Khrushchev, right? It wasn't just that we were looking at satellite imagery and saying, hey, I think they're putting missiles there that could threaten us. We got to do something about it. It was like, okay, now that we have, now that we've, now that we've told them that we know and that it's unacceptable, we have to negotiate our way out of this. But well, the, pr the problem is, is they're getting different messages from the Kremlin. And they're like, well, which one do we take? How do we make a decision? Because if we make the wrong decision, right? General LeMay and the Air Force and the Strategic Air Command, they're ready to go and like start a nuclear war. And Kennedy's like, well, I don't want to do that. So how do I get myself out of this fix, right? It's good analysis. Uh, and it's funny, um, Ted Sorensen, who was one of uh, Kennedy's closest advisors in that, uh, is from Lincoln and actually went to high school just down the just down the street from me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's some amazing, you know, it, it, and 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 people in nuclear, in nuclear, um, you know, nuclear scholarship, nuclear weapons scholarship. I mean, they go back to shelling and they go back to all these people who, what was the case that they that they looked at? It was the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? I mean, this is one of the most famous cases in um, in, in the literature because it's so multidimensional. But I'm a little worried that we're going to have cases ahead of us that will make the Cuban Missile Crisis look like a, you know, like a fairly, a fairly simple problem. And so how do we, you know, how do we prepare for that? And part of it's public awareness, but part of it also is finding the people who are going to be dedicated to have the energy for and the mental horsepower to, to go in and, and to deal with those problems. Right. And as an educator, I, I, I feel like, you know, maybe it's my niche to help try to find some of these people and, and um, show them a, a career path that maybe they didn't know existed before, but may also make sure that they really, you know, they, they've had a good education while they've been here um, that will help them. Well, that's a, that's a good clarion call. And I don't want to keep you too long from performing exactly that function and <laughs> keeping yourself. I'm just great. I'm just grading right now. Thank goodness. So, so it's not a problem at all. <laughs> that's great. So, I mean, just, just to, to free you up, I know you've still got half a working day to go. I mean, we're, we're, we're entering what is by any standards, a, a pretty seriously 
complex year. You know, we have, yeah. I think somebody said that something like a third or a half of all the democracies in the world will be voting next year. We have American elections, we have British elections, we have EU elections, plus we have the second anniversary of Ukraine, plus we have Israel, Gaza, you know, where where do you as a political scientist, but also as an educator, where where do you start next term in terms of your your outlook? Yeah, um, I, look, I I, uh, I I always want to be an optimist because I think a long time a long time ago when I was in grad school, I I taught Sunday school um, <laughs> at the church I I grew up in, right? And um, you know, I think the the way I was you know, told people was, you know, sometimes, you know, the right thing to do, because it's also the hardest thing to do. Right. Um, And I feel like having trying to maintain a spot side of you for optimism can be very hard in these in these times in which everything just feels hard. Um, And I also think that it's the right thing to do. Um, So I would I would tell people that the there's a bunch of reasons people will tell you to be pessimistic. There's a whole bunch of reasons also to be optimistic. There's a tremendous amount of risk, it feels like, out there. And one can imagine everything going poorly. Um, but what happens if it doesn't, right? Uh, what What happens if Ukraine makes progress? What happens if you know, the center holds on a lot of these elections, right? Um, you know, you've got Poland's election, I thought was great, you know? Um, it, Poland is a country, I, I take students to Poland in the summer, um, and I think it's it's got a ton of, it's got a ton of energy there, right? And there's, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of places that have a lot of good energy um, in terms of their societies are looking forward and they're looking up. Um, and I think that in the West, um, you know, this is a natural cycle. It's a, you know, there's sort of an atrophy cycle, but I mean, even the UK, right? I mean, the 1990s, uh, the UK sort of reemerges and, and has this really wonderful moment in the sun and, 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 and you'll have it again. Um, I, 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 I'm positive, right? In the United States right now, we are going through a tremendous amount of political polarization as are most people. Um, but it's also possible that it's transient or that, um, or that something comes along that will focus our attention, and I think that's probably the more likely, the more likely likely scenario, right? I think it's it's tough because you know you you there's actually just a lot of really good people out there who um, who will work really hard and do the right thing. I think sometimes when we find ourselves in this position, um, it's because the information environment is just so skewed, um, and it's it's built on. It sells people on this idea that they should be angry all the time because they know it sells, right? Um, it's like if you look at the U.S. U.S. economy, right? Right now, the U.S. economy is just you know. I, I read the the Economist. It's like every week they're just like, oh my gosh, something, some new bit of wonderful news for the American economy. People here feel like the economy is terrible, and I'm like, this is the best economy we've had in a very long time. So I think it's a matter sometimes of messaging and being like, you know. No, actually take a look at this and then getting people to believe. So at the end of the day, that's leadership, right? I I really feel like in the Western world, we're all looking for that next leader um, that is going to inspire people and is going to, is going to remind people, um, you know, 
why this is actually the best form of government, save the rest, right? To quote Winston Churchill. Um, and those people are emerging. You know, there is a young, the, the, there's a younger generation. They have a t- tremendous amount of energy, right? Um, and they're going to live a long time. Uh, got, you know, I, I hope, we all hope, right? Um, and so they have a lot of stake in, in, and I think right now the world is in a state of transition. And transition's always really uncomfortable um, because there's uncertainty in it. And I think that when you're going through a state of transition, you have to have a good attitude about it and you have to be open-minded. And sometimes, even though it's hard, you have to hope. Um, and I guess that's what I would, that's what the way I would, I would couch it. Um, I don't know. I'm going to be, I'm going to be white knuckling 2024 right along with everybody else. Um, and one thing that I think I've sort of discovered is that some, sometimes as somebody who's paid to pay attention to the world, sometimes you do have to turn it off. Um, sometimes you do have to pay attention, uh, no matter how passionate you are about what's going on around the world. And I, and I encourage people to, to, to do that, to engage. Sometimes you need to know when to turn it off, to put down your phone, to go on a walk, to talk with your kids or your neighbors or your mom and dad, right? Um, to, to have those moments, those are the moments that matter the most. And at the end of the day, those are the moments that remind you, um, remind you of the world that you want to build and to work for. And sometimes we need those moments in order to, to, to get us through those kinds of times. So that's probably a really long-winded answer and I didn't give you a good prognostication, <laughs> um, but that's how I'm going to think about 2024, even when it gets hard. <laughs> that, that is the perfect answer and the perfect way for to get into 2024 as well. That's, um, I think that's, the, I can't think of a better place to stop than that, that rallying call. Thank you. Okay. So I, all that remains for me, Tyler, to, is just to thank you very much for your time and your thoughts. That's been a fascinating conversation. Um, and, yeah, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and and every part of this is, is as relevant here in Scotland in the dark of, of winter as it will be in Lincoln, Nebraska, as it will be in everywhere else. And that's what makes these kind of, these the ability to to cross fertilize and, and have these kind of conversations so valuable so thank you very much indeed yeah and i just have to say you know uh it was my first time in in scotland i've been sort of all over the world and i uh i, I had just gotten to scotland scotland last uh month and i loved it so much i was like i think i could just you know put down roots here uh it's a beautiful beautiful place with wonderful wonderful people and i can't wait to return so thank you again so much for for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Well, there you go. With with observations like that, you know you're always going to be welcome. All right. Well, it's so good to talk to you today and and, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Likewise. Same to you. Happy Hogmanay, as they say here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Global Conversations from Scotland. Find us at scga.scot and subscribe through your podcast provider.